He was one of the most controversial politicians in U.S. history and was not short on enemies. In fact, he's the only governor ever to be assassinated while in office. If you enjoy these two classic episodes of Boss Bill, William Goebel, be sure to check out our other episodes of Unsolved Murders. Every Tuesday, we dive into the mystery of true cold cases. Follow Unsolved Murders free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listener discretion is advised. Kentuckians, the Army of the Confederate States has again entered your territory under my command. Let no one make you believe we come in as invaders to coerce your will or to exercise control over your soil. Far from it. The principle we maintain is that government derives its just power from the consent of the governed. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. We are here to place upon Kentucky's queenly head the crown of progress and reform. Governor Bradley is corrupt. We cannot let another Democrat take office in Kentucky. The Republicans are owned by trusts. The political machinery of the Democratic Party has no distinct voices. They pander to whatever electorate suits them and ignore the corporations that make America great. There is not enough money in this land to bribe, buy, or muzzle, or intimidate me. After the Civil War, Kentucky found itself dug into a deep hole of economic instability and ideological division. Even 30, 40 years later, Kentucky was known as the most violent state in the Union. And the least unified. No one could agree on anything. Blacks don't need the right to vote. Ain't no way they're gonna make it as a sharecropper. Ain't no way you're gonna make it as a sharecropper. We can't treat former slaves different. They the same as us. Don't you get all high and mighty with your union flag on me, brother. You know, my side won. Barely. Maybe if the damn railroad didn't keep half my paycheck, I wouldn't have to try and sharecrop. Maybe I'd have my own farm. Hank, George, dinner's up. Just a minute. Now that railroad's got nothing to do with your sad sack views on race. Say what you want about not having enough to eat, but no black man did that to you. The blacks are stealing out jobs from the hardworking citizens' hands. That's enough. Severe economic depression split the rich and poor. Racial tensions split blacks and whites. Even families were split along Union and Confederate lines. Hank, George. Oh, don't tell me you two are fighting again. Get off each other. And next time it won't be a warning shot. It was a scary time. Everyone had a gun. People were getting murdered left and right. Most notably, the state's governor. William Goebel, the only governor ever to die by assassination while in office. After only four days of power. Who could he possibly have angered in four days? More like who couldn't he possibly have angered in 44 years? He angered many. Over 20 people were initially suspected of Goebel's murder, but not a single one was found undoubtedly guilty. 
Historians in the Kentucky state government have puzzled over the life and death of William Goble for over a hundred years. All we know for sure is the 33rd governor of Kentucky was shot in cold blood on January 30th, 1899. And his murderer was never caught. Welcome to Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. Today, we're opening up an investigation into the murder of William Goebel. An upstart politician who wasn't afraid to speak his mind. A governor whose message resonated with those scared of changing times. A man who rose to power during one of the most divided times in the nation's history. And most importantly, the target for a lot of hatred. And you thought politics only got crazy in 2016. This is episode 13 of Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, you can find them all on your favorite podcast directory. Don't forget to subscribe. You can also listen on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Visit our Facebook page, Parcast, to join the conversation. And now, back to the assassination of William Goebel. We have seen a huge transfer of wealth from the middle class to the top one-tenth of one percent. And I think it is appropriate to ask the wealthy and large corporations to start paying their fair share of tax. The question is, are the corporations the masters or the servants of the people? I will be the greatest jobs president that God ever created. I tell you that. I believe I have a mission to perform. Now, my friends, I am going to get to some very important points that actually prove that black lives do matter and we have to take action together. Pennsylvania, 1856, shortly before the dawn of the Civil War. German immigrants try to make a new life for themselves in the USA. William Goebel was born prematurely, weighing only three pounds. But the little fighter pulled through and survived, setting the tone for the rest of his life. I never got anything in my life that was worth having without a hard fight. And I am always willing to make the best fight I can for anything I believe worth having. Raised speaking German, William didn't speak English until he was six years old. He was bilingual and he was smart. So, of course, his opponents claimed he was actually born in Europe and thus unqualified to hold public office. The original birthers. Man, is anything in politics new anymore? <laughs> Not really. Goba was a prime example of the American dream. Son of immigrants, grew up poor, got an education, and found wealth and success. But unlike many, he didn't forget his roots. Goebel's father, a former Union soldier, worked as a sharecropper. And then on the railroad, he worked long hours, made little money, and was barely home. The family was so poor, even William had to work. President Lincoln shot. Read all about it. President of the United States assassinated. Get your paper. How much? Two cents. Keep the change. Buy yourself some shoes, boy. Seeing the pain of railroad workers' families firsthand, little William wanted to help, but his father had other plans for him. William was apprenticed to a jeweler, which, while a great way to make money in theory, didn't really work out for him. 
It's unclear why, but it likely has to do with the fact that Goebel was known to be cold, ruthless, and aloof. Reporter Irving S. Cobb said of him, I never saw a man who physically so closely suggested the reptilian as this man did. So he called him a literal snake. He was also considered by nature an autocrat, but not an autocrat born to the purple. And he loved power as drunkards love their bottle. Not that all of his nicknames were bad. Some people really admired Governor Goebel. He's the Kenton King. King William the First. William the Conqueror! I used to call him the Kenton Czar. Good old Boss Bill, helping out the common man. Goebel's perceived power came from two things, his deep, booming voice and his defense of the common man. After the jewelers didn't work out, William attended Cincinnati College of Law and apprenticed at the law firm of John W. Stevenson. By apprentice, we mean he was basically an intern. But while he was copying briefs and fetching coffee, young William developed a close relationship with the head of the firm. And this was a big deal. Because John W. Stevenson had been the 25th governor of Kentucky. William, want to go out to the theater with us tonight? No, thank you. I have this case to finish. There'll be broads aplenty. Women don't care for me. Okay. Best of luck with your briefs. Mr. Stevenson, sir, I'm nearly finished. I admire a man with a work ethic. You'll go far. I believe the matter of achievement is more of the will than of the brain. Indeed. You, young man, deserve a promotion. Well, thank you, Governor. I'm not the governor anymore. John will do. Thank you, John. Now let me look that over. William Goebel and John Stevenson had a great relationship, possibly the strongest relationship Goebel had in his whole life, except perhaps with his mother. Before long, Stevenson promoted Goebel to partner and even named William executor of his estate after he died. That's quite the honor. Well, Goebel was an excellent lawyer. True. He specialized in railroad and corporate law, taking on the big businesses that had abused his father. Specifically, Goebel took cases against the Louisville and Nashville Railroad, also known as L&N. He became a magnet for overworked and underpaid railroad employees and their families. And I, I miss him so. He was, I, now he's. Can you feed your children? We've had assistance from the church. I can't. I have three babies. I'll uh, represent you. Oh. Pro bono. <laughs> Thank you. And ever since, I can't lift my left arm above my head. Doc says I may never. And how many railroad ties were you made to carry? Two. So I reckon 300, 400 pounds. The ties were so heavy, I just collapsed. I can barely work anymore. I can't make my rent. I'll take your case. My brother died in a train wreck. Would you represent me? I can't pay you up front, but you can keep half the settlement. I will indeed. Ruling in favor of the prosecution. I rule in favor of the prosecution. Rules in favor of the prosecution. Goebel was hailed as a hero. Go to the railroad lawyer. He'll fix you right up. He's the poor man's lawyer. He helped my cousin when the railroad gave him nothing. Champion of the common man. That William Goebel is. Did you hear about the woman who named her baby after him? Of course she did. The Kenton King won her case. In 15 years, he never lost a case against L&N, and he amassed quite the fortune. Goebel gained fame, and with fame comes enemies. In this case, 
every rich businessman and monopoly owner in the railroad industry. Especially the owners of L&N. But we'll come back to that later. In 1887, Gobo was presented a new opportunity to help railroad workers. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. Now the story continues. State Senator James W. Bryan was leaving his seat midterm to pursue a lieutenant governorship, and Goble ran for the open seat, representing Covington, Kentucky. His platforms were railroad regulation and labor causes, exactly what he'd been fighting for as a lawyer, but now on a bigger scale. My name is William Goble. I'm here to announce that I am officially running for Senate representative from the district of Covington, Kentucky. But even though he ran as a Democrat and had the support of his close friend, former Governor John Stevenson, the election was close. 1,004 Democrat, 1,005 Democrat, 1,005 Republican, 1,007 Democrat, 93 Union Labor, 1,006 Republican, 94 Union Labor, 1,008 Republican. A third party, the Union Labor Party, had risen to power and stole votes from both Republicans and Democrats. Their platform was pro-worker and anti-monopoly. Direct competition for William Goebel. 4,128 Democrat, 4,129 Republican. With a difference of only 56 votes, Goebel won. I do solemnly swear that I will support the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of this Commonwealth and be faithful and true to the Commonwealth of Kentucky so long as I continue a citizen thereof and that I will faithfully execute to the best of my ability the office of senator according to law. The tight race spoke to a divided Kentucky. See, at that time, Kentucky was still reeling from the Civil War and Reconstruction. The northern part was urban, industrialized, and opposed to slavery. Meanwhile, the southern part was rural, agrarian, and uncertain of how to flourish economically without slaves. This was reflected in sharply partisan politics. During Reconstruction in the 1870s and 1880s, northern Republicans came in to enforce civil rights for newly enfranchised black people, but they treated all native Kentuckians like they were racist Confederate rebels, even those who had fought on the Union side. Well, this pissed a lot of people off, giving sway to the Democrats, who held power in Kentucky for 30 years by electing ex-Confederate soldiers and intimidating black voters. The Democrats also supported the working class, including farmers and railroad workers. The Southern Republican Party weakened, holding to big business and racial equality. The Republicans are owned by trusts. Goebel appealed to poor white men who felt disenfranchised in the wake of political change. Much like the supporters of Donald Trump today. There is not enough money in this land to bribe, buy, or muzzle or intimidate me. And I'm totally self-funding my campaign. So I don't have to take donors and special interest people and lobbyists. I don't have to bring them in. Both men earned the label demagogue for their brash statements and loud speeches. Like Trump, Goebel was a wealthy man, seeking leadership after tough economic times. And as a state senator, Goebel followed through on his promises. His first bill reduced road tolls, which was a big win for the Kentucky poor. But not everyone was a fan. $3,000. 3000 
And that's just this week. You don't have to rub it in, Theodore. Calm yourself, John. You aren't the only one losing a lot of money over this. I may have to sell my summer home. But I'm losing the most money. William Goble can rot in hell with his toll-free robes. Rot in hell? More like rot in the appeals court. He's trying to become a judge. He's going to have to try harder. No one crosses John Sanford twice. Are you saying you're going to become a judge? Ludicrous. We're going to block that nomination. Put someone else up for it. Great idea. Don't patronize me. John Sanford, Theodore Hallam, and Harvey Myers were rich, powerful men who managed politics in Kentucky without actually holding office, much like the Koch brothers today. They succeeded in blocking William Goebel's nomination to the appeals court judge seat, but they weren't able to stop him from continuing to help railroad workers. Goebel served on a committee to investigate railroad industry political lobbying and exposed lobbyists for bribery and blackmail. This was imperative in keeping the State Railway Commission, which attempted to regulate railways and keep fares from shooting through the roof, from being abolished. Here's where he resembled Bernie Sanders a lot more than Trump. Almost all of the wealth and much of the income is going to the top 1%. There is something profoundly wrong in our country. There is something profoundly wrong when we have seen in recent years a proliferation of millionaires and billionaires, while at the same time millions of Americans, folks here in New Hampshire, Vermont, are working two or three jobs, and we have the highest rate of childhood poverty of any major country on earth. That is wrong, that is unacceptable, and together we're going to change that. The Koch brothers alone, they have pledged to spend at least $900 million, $900 million on this campaign cycle to elect Republican candidates. That is more money, that is more money than either the Democratic Party or the Republican Party will spend. Defeating big business with government regulations angered the 1%. Well, back then the upper class especially Milton H. Smith, who owned a monopoly of railroads. You can't raise taxes on the railroads. Talk to the Senate. Do you really think my little railroads are worth $3 million? Sir, your company owns over 4,000 miles of railroad. We can't afford the taxes. There's no reverse in that decision. Damn, Goble. In addition to now having to actually pay taxes, railroads were hard-pressed for business when the Depression of 1893 hit. The meltdown led railroads to cut workers' salaries while maintaining high rents in company-owned towns. And at that time, almost all railroad workers lived in company towns. So 1,400 employees rallied to protest. Raise wages, lower rent! Raise wages, lower rent! Monopolies are not for the people! Monopolies are not for me! Down with Allen Fights broke out among strikers protesting workers were arrested, allowing the railroads to get back to business. Until William Goebel, who still worked as a lawyer, got on the case. My clients unionized due to unfair treatment. Is free speech and freedom of association no longer a right in this country? It won't be if you rule in favor of Pullman, Your Honor. You cannot cut wages without lowering the rent in a company town. It's a sentence to poverty. Pullman has sentenced these families to poverty. Would they then sentence the breadwinners to jail? Rules in favor of the prosecution. 
the citizen's hero. Goebel represented people opposed to tolls on the John A. Roebling Suspension Bridge, owned by the Covington Cincinnati Bridge Company, which was owned by... No one crosses John Sanford twice. John Sanford. Is William Goebel after all my income? Will he come for my wife and children next? He is single. That was a rhetorical question, Hallam. Get me the Daily Commonwealth. I have some things to say about William Goebel. It wasn't just politics anymore. The feud was getting personal. Sanford engaged in a practice called posting, where a person could anonymously publish insulting public information about an enemy. So, like every presidential candidate this year on Twitter? They are pretty direct. Let's look at a few. At real Donald Trump. I will bring jobs back and get wages up. People haven't had a real wage increase in almost 20 years. Clinton killed jobs. At Hillary Clinton. At real Donald Trump. Delete your account. At real Donald Trump. How long did it take your staff of 823 people to think that up? And where are your 33,000 emails that you deleted? At Hillary Clinton. Putting Donald Trump in charge of our economy would be devastating for working families. But instead of spreading through retweets, these insults were sold in local papers. For months, John Sanford published articles in the Daily Commonwealth, which essentially roasted William Goebel. This was while he and William Goebel were in lawsuits over various road tolls. Mean Tweets, 1895 edition. Well, word got around to Goebel that Sanford was writing these. A friend even showed William an article's original draft in Sanford's handwriting. So Goebel fired back. He published an article in the Ledger on April 6, 1895. Colonel John Gonorrhea Sanford claims to carry the legislative vote of the County of Kenton in the next senatorial race in his pocket and proposes to deliver this bodily to Senator Joe Blackburn in his effort for a second re-election. Gonorrhea John owes a particular debt to Blackburn and proposes to pay it. When Senator Blackburn's brother was governor, the senator induced his brother, the governor, to pardon a close kinsman of gonorrhea John before trial or conviction, while a fugitive in Canada, because of indictment returned against him by a grand jury of Canton County for forgery and embezzlement while the county clerk of Covington. There will, however, be some music before the debt is paid off that way. And, yes, he did accuse Sanford of having a rather unsavory disease three times. Venereal disease. How low is low? Take this away. Yes, sir. And bring my mail. What has... No. No, this must be a mistake. Are you missing a letter, sir? I'm missing three major accounts. The city of Covington, the county of Covington, and Covington schools. These numbers cannot be right. They cannot. Who moved them? To add injury to insult, William Goebel moved three bank accounts he had control of, the cities, the counties, and the schools, from the Farmers and Traders Bank, which John Sanford ran, to Frank Helm's First National Bank of Covington. I am going to kill Goebel or be killed. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. On April 11, 1895, William Goebel and Attorney General Jack Hendricks were on their way to get cigars when they ran into Frank Helm, president of First National Bank. Mr. Helm, good to see you. William Goebel and Jack Hendricks, what a pleasure. We're off to Beckert's to get Mr. Hendricks a cigar. 
I told him Beckert's has the best. Heavens, you didn't hear? Beckert died this day around noon. His place is closed. Oh, what a shame. You'll have to go to Nedler's Drugstore, down Madison Street. Poor fella. Well, I also need a check cashed. Helm here will cash your check. Excellent. We do appreciate your business. Wait, is that who I think it is? Yes. They're the ass. <laughs> They're the ass. John Sanford waited on the steps of First National Bank, hands in his pockets, ready to draw his pistol. Mr. Sanford, I'm Frank Helm, president of First National. I understand you are president of farmers and traders? Yes. Business rivals, I see. All in good company, though. Pleasure to meet you. The pleasure is mine. Are you left-handed? No. Both Sanford and Goebel had their right hands in their pockets, afraid to let their gun out of reach. And this is Mr. Hendricks, Attorney General. Yes, hello. I understand that you assume the authorship of the article? I do. Are you hurt? Ah, Swant. Did you just self-defense? Look. He shot through your coat and you shot through his head? He missed. Oh, heavens. Where are you going? Police. Can I help you, sir? Are you here to report a crime? Just a moment. Justice, I need you to come to the police station right now. That is all. Thank you. Senator Goble. Well, I suppose you have heard of it. Here? A pistol. Here to surrender it. Let's take you into the chief's office. After a two-hour meeting with the chief of police, William Goebel's brother, Justice, posted a bond and William went home. Shot by a state senator. W.P. Goebel kills John Sanford in a street fight at Covington. Both men, prominent Kentuckians, had been business and political enemies for years. A newspaper attack directly caused the tragedy. John Sanford died five hours after being shot. With his biggest enemy out of the way, You'd think Goebel would be safe to continue his political career, but that was not the case. Did you hear about Senator Goebel and John Sanford? Of course, their duel is all over the papers. It wasn't a duel. Not officially, but you saw the postings. Somebody publicly accuses you of, well, unmentionable diseases, and you don't fight for your honor? Nope. Goebel's claiming self-defense. You are such a pansy. I'd pull out your pistol in a heartbeat. Though dueling was common at the time, it was illegal for anyone who had engaged in dueling to hold public office. Kentucky actually had just updated the oath of office in 1891 to read as... I do solemnly swear that I will support the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of this Commonwealth, and be faithful and true to the Commonwealth of Kentucky so long as I continue a citizen thereof, and that I will faithfully execute, to the best of my ability, the office of Senator according to law, and I do further solemnly swear that since the adoption of the present Constitution, I, being a citizen of this state, have not fought a duel with deadly weapons within this state nor out of it, nor have I sent or accepted a challenge to fight a duel with deadly weapons, nor have I acted as second in carrying a challenge, nor aided or assisted any person thus offending, so help me God. Dueling was such a problem in Kentucky that this very same oath of office from 1891 is still taken by all Kentucky public officials today. Self-defense or prearranged duel. Goebel was called to a court hearing for homicide. If found guilty of dueling, his career would be over. 
And why, Senator Goebel, were you armed coming to the bank? I always am. Why did you shoot Mr. Sanford? Sanford had been after me for months in the Daily Commonwealth. Though I was simply trying to do the best for the good people of Covington, he couldn't see past his prejudice. He came after me. I had no choice but to protect myself. It was so fast I couldn't aim my pistol any other way. It was a miracle he missed and I could defend myself at all. Senator Goebel, are you opening your mail, sir? I am, Your Honor. Very well. Hmm. I have made my decision. I hereby declare that I find reasonable doubt of Senator Goebel's guilt for premeditated murder of John Sanford. I know what you're thinking. He did not get off that easy. The situation was much too complicated, right? Right. Even though the judge at his preliminary hearing found him not guilty, Goebel was indicted a second time to be tried before a grand jury who would determine whether or not William Goebel meant to kill John Sanford. Both Jack Hendricks and Frank Helm were brought in to testify. Mr. Hendricks, can you tell me who shot first at the scene of the crime? I declare, I don't know who shot first. The shots were so close together. Objection! He's protecting his friend. Surely one shot was... I am not. The shots rang in my ears simultaneously. Order! Mr. Hendricks took an oath. He will not perjure in my court. I swear there was no way to see. Motion to call the second witness to the stand. I was right up against them, and really thought at first that I myself had been shot. The shots were right in succession. Bang, bang. And Sanford fell forward, instantly, face downward on the bottom step. My impression is that he was standing on the steps as I was, for in falling, his head struck the front part of my left leg and my left foot. I can't see for the life of me how Goebel escaped. Would Goebel get away with dueling? Would he get away with murder? And who killed William Goebel if not John Sanford? Next week on Unsolved Murders. William Goebel is on trial for his career. Order in the court. Senator Goebel murdered my husband. Mrs. Kate Sanford insane. Widow of victim William Goebel, nominee for governor of Kentucky, loses her mind. A gubernatorial race includes midnight deals and broken promises. The only way to stop Harden is to ally our delegates and put him out of the race. You traitor! And William Goebel is shot. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. Or through our website, parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. A new episode of Unsolved Murders comes out every Tuesday. Let us know what you think and join the conversation on our Parcast Facebook page. You can tweet us at Parcast Network. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T Network. We thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us for the next installment. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Ron and Max Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, and written by Maggie Admire. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Stephen Pinto, Gregory Polson, and Vanessa Richardson. 